My name is Kim Rothwell, and this is the Return to Embodiment. In today's episode, I'm delighted to share with you my conversation with Rachel Sharon a dear friend and colleague who I greatly admire and just love to be with. And I think you'll hear that in our conversation. <laughs> Rachel has a private practice called Soma Wise in the Logan Square neighborhood of Chicago. And she is a body-centered therapist. So her training in yoga as well as sensory motor psychotherapy come into how she brings talk therapy as well as body-based experiential interventions to help clients build curiosity and resilience within the present moment. She also is a co-founder of a nonprofit in the Avondale neighborhood, InnerSense Healing Arts Collective, a community healing arts space that offers yoga and other types of reflective practices. So she teaches yoga classes there, and I highly recommend you checking them out. She brings all of her skills and awareness and compassion into her yoga classes, and her shavasanas are just delicious. Finally, she also works with an organization called Breathe, which is in its seventh year, and it is an expansive four-day festival that happens in Spencer, Indiana. It will be July 9th through the 12th this year. And it has yoga, meditation, slack lining, swimming, dancing, hanging around a fire, fire dancing. She says lots of magic happens there. So that is a brief introduction to Rachel Sharon and the work that she is putting her heart and creativity into. I'm Kim Rothwell, and I'm welcoming you to the Return to Embodiment. Yeah, you're very much an entrepreneur. You have different gigs, different creative organizations that you're behind and supporting that tap into different parts of who you are. Yes. Um, and it's funny to think about it that way because entrepreneur is not something I would have ever assumed myself to be. Like job aptitude, little quizzes and tests, like what are you going to be when you grow up? I don't remember what I got, but I know that entrepreneur was never in the realm of my vision of what I would do. Um, you know, even counseling or therapy or psychology, any of that at that time wasn't in the realm of what I was going to do. This is all rolled out in this really sort of like um, emergent or organic way that has been a winding road, but really um, a, a beautiful path to follow. What was the, what, what did the test tell you? I don't remember. <laughs> Probably like, I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember. Yeah. Yeah. But it wasn't anything like what you're doing right now. No. What I'm doing right now wasn't on the list. It probably wasn't. <laughs> yeah. It wasn't one of the options. <laughs> no. You're I like, mean, actually, none of this works for me. I'm going to have to create my own <laughs> options. Exactly. Several of them, please. Exactly. Which is basically, you know, what, what I've done. Um, I mean, way back when, when I first had this little seed of an idea that I wanted to bring yoga and 
counseling or therapeutic work together, I had never even heard of that. You know, I know that there were people doing it. Um, now I know that there were, um, but I didn't know anyone at that time. I didn't know where to find the systems, where to find the people or the mentors. It was an idea that came to me because I knew that I was founding immense healing in my own yoga practice. As I was in school for counseling, I just kept feeling like something was missing. Um, the conversations were enriching and interesting to me, but I was curious why no one was talking about movement or talking about yoga or noticing, you know, in grad school, we learn sometimes through watching videos of the, you know, the founders of counseling or the more um, sort of old school um, professionals in counseling, watching their videos. Um, of how they do counseling, watching their individual sessions. And no one was mentioning what you could see going on with that person's body. And so, I don't know, I just found it really fascinating. And so while I was in grad school, that's when I started my 200-hour teacher training because I was just looking for, you know, kind of the missing pieces, the missing parts, how to be in the conversation. I wanted more information about what was happening with me and my own journey into that healing process. Um, but I wanted to know why. Um, and so that's when I started my 200 hour teacher training so that I could give the why to my clients in sessions eventually. Well, actually we just like jumped in and normally, I love it. Um, so I'm really curious about, um, the, the first question that I like to ask people, <laughs> which is totally fine. We can do this any way you want. But a question that I do want to ask is, how is embodiment to you? Um, so what is embodiment to me? Like, how is it? How is embodiment to you? How is embodiment to me? That's what you're um, asking that in a particular way. Um, <laughs> it's a process question mm -hmm. rather than a definition mm -hmm. question, mm -hmm. right? Like, I kind of... I know people who can be like, oh, I'm going to give you 50 definitions of embodiment, which is very cool. But I'm actually curious, and I think as a sensory motor psychotherapist, as, whether, as well as a yogi, as well as counselor, I, I trust that there's a lot of training into the subtleties of embodiment that I think um, are experiential Yes, and I don't think there's anything other than experiential. I don't know what else there is for embodiment. Um, I'm sure there are like dictionary definitions or definitions written by, you know, all of the many professionals in the field or people who've worked on it in a thesis type of setting. Um, but words can't even necessarily contain embodiment. Embodiment has to be an experiential experience. And to me, it is, you know, how embodiment is for me um, is to feel God inside, to be able to connect to spirit or universal energy or you know whatever word contains that for for whomever is listening is to feel that internally and to then be able to use my body as a tool, like almost like an antenna. Um, 
where it's always picking up information and I know it's always giving off information in the subtleties of my movements or my tone or my facial expressions, um, as is everyone and everything else around me. And so how embodiment is for me is to be able to feel God, love, nature, universe, spirit, consciousness inside of my being. The experience of embodiment, the experience of spirit, God, is mediated through the antenna of the body. received I think is, a, is the word that's standing with me it's re- the energy of that the feeling of that is received through um, the vehicle of the body um, you know and we can look at that physiologically with heart rate and digestion and even just the information we take in with our um, you know the tiny nerve endings in our fingers and our toes and our pores and our sense of smell, you know, is kind of the physiological answer, but then there's that more um, deeply spiritual answer of like an inner knowing, like a deep sense of inner peace. Um, this is my experience of embodiment, and it's also the experience that I find when I meet others who I do also consider to have a deep connection um, or a deep relationship with their own embodiment. Um, there is this just sense of well-being and peace and ease that these um, folks sort of emanate from them. Um, and that's not to say that it's all of the time that, that people who connect and um, practice embodiment are never anxious, you know, or they never get stressed or they never yell at their kids or their husband. Like, that's absolutely not the experience that I'm explaining. But even amongst that, there's always this ability to sort of like tap back into a, a deeper sense of self and a deeper knowing um, that I think is a reflection of like a source of divinity, really. Like that thing, if you want to call it the place up in the sky or nature or whatever, that is completely, um, none of that stress can touch. You know, that no matter like what the storm is, roaring at the surface, that the depth of the water, the depth of the ocean is always dark and peaceful and calm. It's a connection to source and peaceful source. Even in your work, working with people who have experienced trauma, embodiment can be very difficult. I think that if we look at it in terms of um, the people that I've worked with that come in in a state of um, trauma, they're working on healing, recovering um, from a traumatic history. Embodiment is would be the understanding of the depth of their um, okayness um, and understanding into the depth of their untouchedness. Um, 
but there's a lot of like levels to that and there's a lot of steps to that or a lot of layers covering covering that that. yeah Mm -hmm. and depending on you know where people are on their path and what has happened in their history um I honestly there are some clients that I wouldn't even say the b word with the word body Mm -hmm. for a while Mm -hmm. you know I might I might um point towards it in ways that aren't really using that word um or do it in a way that is almost um, an agreed upon, a collaborated upon, and a consensual experiment or a little bit of an exposure to even bring the idea of body into the room. Um, but there are, yeah, there are many layers and barriers and strategies that are working really hard within the system to, I think, cover up their untouchedness, their okayness. And it's like about getting to know all of those layers. You know, I think some systems might call them parts as well, might be a part of this. Um, knowing, you know, what their strengths are because it's, it's quite like a precious model that the mind can set up in that way. You know, to not have to feel into the, what might be really scary and really painful. And there might be really scary and really painful layers to that to get to the untouchedness that's below um and so you know i come from a perspective to be really um encouraging and really strengths-based and really light in this work you know i mean the work absolutely goes deep but i think humor can go a long way lightheartedness can go a really long way um, in helping people understand their own strategies to feeling that deeper sense mm-hmm. Because those strategies are there for a really long time and for really good reason, you know. And why would they want to not have those anymore or not have access to those anymore? So. I'm, for, for some reason, presence is coming up yeah. for me. Like, until there's found a place of presence where there's a recognition, like this space that we're in right now is really beautiful. <laughs> And allowing oneself even to just enjoy the present moment with another person who has gained trust Mm -hmm. to be able to tap into this is actually you, the okayness and the beauty and the trust. Mm -hmm. Even if it's for one split second, you know, it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be this like hugely profound, you know, although it is hugely profound, but it doesn't have to be this big deal, I guess. It can be like this one split second of feeling understood, feeling that someone else is sitting with you in presence um, to kind of allow people to start to take that turn towards it themselves, you know? And we know through neurobiology, through the study of neurobiology, that my presence engages your presence. If my, the present parts of my mind are online and actively engaged, yours will turn on as well, which is just like quite mind-blowing. <laughs> I, can't, I can't fully wrap my head around how that works. Um, I'll leave it to the sciencey people to explain. <laughs> um, but being in presence with someone who knows at the depth of you, you are completely okay. You are completely 
completely okay. There's nothing wrong about you. There's um, you know, nothing that is uh, abnormal about you. You are okay. And so I think that sitting with others in that belief can help to engage it within them. And creating the space to do so, creating a quiet space, creating a multi-sensory experience for people, um, I have also found to be helpful in that. You know, I have 10 skylights in here, and then a door with a window, and a window on the third floor. And it was a couple months after we moved in, it was summer day, middle of the day, and we had done a little bit of movement on the floor and on the yoga mat, and then um, ended in a kind of a yoga nidra, which is a certain style of um, mindful body relaxation. And the sun was shining in and the birds were chirping and it just like the energy in here felt so beautiful. And the client sat up afterwards and said, she said, I feel like the way this room feels right now. And I was like, yes. Because <laughs> as soon as I saw this space, I was like, I want it to feel in here. I want people's insides to feel. I want their brain to feel. I want their heart to feel. And so in that moment, I was like, yes she gets it you know she gets it and like that is a hugely profound experience but also you know um, just a moment in time that helps to really like plant important seeds and then you know from there we can do the work of okay great you can hear the birds chirping you can see the sun shining and you feel like that inside of yourself how can you feel like that inside of yourself now when you're at your really super deeper high full high stress job how can you bring those birds back online? How can you bring the sunlight back online within your own being when you're out in the world that is, you know, can feel quite chaotic and um, quite scary sometimes, so. Mm -hmm. Yeah, resourcing the, the beautiful, the um, peaceful, the, the joyful, the curious, mm -hmm. all of those things, mm -hmm. it's so nice. Um, so for you, was it little seeds for you? And where were the seeds found in your journey mm. of, of coming to, to experience embodiment as you do? I don't know if there were teachers or if there were um, moments that were those seeds, places. I think that the seeds for me start way back in my childhood, um, in the times where I would sort of just like sit alone playing, but per the, the memories that are the most poignant are um, outside, you know, playing outside in my yard. Um, I had this obsession with rocks and I had this obsession with couple of the certain trees in my yard that like so amazed by them and so fascinated by them and like loved being lost in my own world of wonder. Um, I love spending time by myself. You know, I also had friends. I wasn't an isolated kid, but I loved spending time alone in that way when I was really little. Um, so I think that those were the seeds of it. And much of my life was also spent in a dance studio. Um, and I enjoyed it. I knew that I loved dancing. I loved performing, loved learning choreography, making choreography. I loved all of that. But I didn't know what it was or what it was doing to for me. Um, 
until I had several major injuries and couldn't do it anymore. So I, I hurt my knees three separate times in pretty major ways. But the third time was, I think, during my freshman year of college. And so at that time, I had to make the decision to quit, you know, the more formal versions of dance that I was learning and practicing. And I was kind of losing something that had been a major part of my life. But I didn't think into it too much. But I did, I mean, I definitely felt it in my mental health. I wasn't making the connection that, oh, I'm not dancing, and now I'm, like, more sluggish all of the time. Things are grayer. Things aren't as bright in my life. Um, I want to sleep a lot more. And then my roommate at the time was like, yeah, that's called depression. And I was like, what? <laughs> no. And um, then simultaneously at some point in the coming months after that, I walked into my first yoga class and it was like immediate as we started moving and breathing that I was like, oh, oh. Moving my body was keeping me like mentally healthy for all of those years. I didn't realize, I had no idea. You know, I hadn't put that together. You don't know what you have until it's gone. Um, and so I just immediately fell so deeply in love with yoga. Um, and the fact that I had suddenly found a practice where there were no mirrors and there was no one telling me whether I had done that well or not, you know, or if I needed to try it again to do it better or to kick higher or whatever. I think that my first yoga teacher was definitely one of those people and one of those seeds. She, um, I don't even know who she was, to be honest with you, but she, so I went to Kent State University in near in Kent, Ohio. So there was this one yoga class that would run in eight-week sessions a couple times a year at the rec center. And it was $24 for the eight weeks. <laughs> and every time it would start over, I'd be like, oh, no, I don't know if I can afford this. <laughs> I think, which makes me laugh now, too. But, um, and so the first week I remember, you know, it was this, what I would have called then a middle-aged lady, now she's probably my age or younger, but what I would have called then a middle-aged lady when I was, what, 20, 19 or 20. I swear my first memory of her was that she floated into the room on a cloud. She had on these big palazzo pants and just floated in and she sat out all of her singing bowls and led us through this meditation and I was mesmerized by her. Um, and she taught in this really beautiful and gentle way. It was nothing fancy. It was nothing vigorous. It was so simple when I think back about it. Um, there would be like four of us in there learning with her. And so I think she was a really big seed because I don't know if I'd ever really seen anyone like that before that floated like that and that meditated like that. Um, and she just, she kind of fascinated me. So when you say float, is it... <laughs> It's like, it's amazing. Does, did she have an emotional quality or was it like a spirit thing? Like, what were you picking? Was it embodiment you were picking up on? Like what? Yeah, it was embodiment. It was a spiritual sense of just being, a, like a sense of peace that she just floated into the room with. You know, it was at the rec center. So there were like dudes lifting weights in the next room. And like, you know what that sounds like, dropping weights. And it would just all fade out for that hour that we were 
doing yoga and there were mirrors in there because I'm sure that the other classes in there were probably like aerobics and kickboxing and stuff and she would set us up so we're facing away from the mirrors you know and if she noticed us looking in the mirrors she would bring attention to it and so it was also the first time I had moved my body in a room without mirrors which I think is a huge shift um, towards embodiment. Yeah say more about that what do mirrors do? My experience is that um, the mirrors makes moving more about how it looks than how it feels. And as a woman, I know that it's not a unique experience to be very critical of my body all of the time. And so when I can always see it from every angle, and I can suck in a little bit more, or I can turn my thigh in this way so it looks a little smaller, you know, or squeeze my butt cheeks in a little more. <laughs> it was right? Just... I'm like crying with laughter right now because it's just so true, right? The, the mirror. The mirror. You can squeeze in and right in just the right way to look, make your shape look better. And so when the mirrors went away, it's quite disorienting because it, there is also a learning component to be able to see where your body is in space, which can be helpful. There's, so, there's a centering of the self in the mirror, right? Because we can learn where we are in space. Externally. Externally. Yeah. Yes. And try to like get it to look like it's supposed to. But then even like that word it right? It's a uh, yeah. the object. reflective, the object. Yeah. yeah, the body is then the object. As opposed to the finding where I am in space by finding where I right. am in space, which as a, as a dancer, that's the more beautiful dance, yeah. right? That's the more successful dance is where the dancer actually finds where she is in space mm. through an embodied sense. Mm. But so much of how we are taught is to experience body as object. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes. And so for me, yoga was the first time that I was being guided any differently. And I'm lucky because I didn't grow up in a dance school where it was harsh, super harshly critical. I did not have that experience. They never criticized me and my body personally, but it was still about higher, bigger, longer, <laughs> kick higher, you know, spin harder. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and led to injuries and led to major injuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I always joke that now I have the knees of like a retired NFL player. <laughs> I'd had three knee surgeries by the time I was um, 21. Cause that's a big, that's a big difference. Like you're saying the, <clears throat> the teacher was gentle, right? The non-harming value of yoga. Yeah is also about centering inside the experience of moving so you can track that you're not going to hurt something. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's a learned skill. That's not something that it might be something we're born with, but it's something we lose really quickly. I think over sports Mm -hmm. dance asks us to ignore all of those inner messages and just to push more and go harder and you're applauded the more you push and the harder you go. Yeah, so it's funny to think back about um, this woman who I don't know who she is, somewhere in Northeast Ohio, maybe she's still there. (laughs) Um, Being, I think, my first model of the kind of embodiment and peace and spirituality that I have then later on went to really like seek out. 
And somehow she was able to create a space that you remember now that was, this is my word, but like sacred or um, set aside from the sounds of the weightlifting in the other rooms. And when you went in that room, like somehow she held space, like let's be conscious if we're drawn to look at the mirrors. Like that's another space holding Mm -hmm. way of containing Mm -hmm. process. Yeah, and I remember feeling like each time I'd get out of there, I would also feel like I was floating out of there. And and I also loved it because no one was doing this with me. Yoga wasn't that thing that my group of girlfriends and I were going to, you know, which is beautiful. Now I see a lot of like girls that, you know, meet mm-hmm. up and go to yoga and mm-hmm. have lunch. And that's amazing. But it, that wasn't my experience in my early years of yoga. It was very, again, kind of by myself, which also felt really special to me. Um, kind of went back to the rocks. Yeah, it was like my, my new rocks. You know, it was this new thing that no one else, I didn't have to explain it to anyone. I didn't have to show up in a certain way to, for anyone else to be there that knew me. Um, but I do remember, you know, that I would get out and, and go back and to my roommates and be like, oh, I just learned this thing. It feels so good. You know, I'd show them and they'd kind of be like, oh, cool. <laughs> at that time, yoga was still kind of hanging on to a little bit of a counterculture subculture thing that definitely is not happening anymore and so I think I've always been really compelled by counterculture always my whole life since I was a child I wanted to be a little bit different I wanted to do things that were a little bit outside the norm Um, and so when I found this yoga practice it really fit that for me counterculture so now you're like, so I'm going to just build a festival. That's counterculture. <laughs> <laughs> but it's starting to get super popular. Yeah. Well, and I think InnerSense <clears throat> for me, the nonprofit um, that I'm the co-creator and co-founder of, um, is kind of hanging on to a little bit of that counterculture thing because you know, we formed around really trying to do a healing arts space, a yoga space differently than we've ever seen anyone else try to do it. Um, you know, there's so many yoga studios in Chicago, which is fantastic. The yoga community in Chicago is top notch for sure. And there's so many beautiful studios here and beautiful studio communities, but I was noticing that a lot of the studios that opened kind of like all run on a very similar format. You know, the more people that I came to know, the more I understood that those spaces weren't welcoming to everyone. Middle class, white, thin, able-bodied woman, I can walk into any of those spaces and I might be uncomfortable because I'm nervous because I don't know anybody, but I can feel okay there. And so it really opened my eyes to start to hear that that was not the case for everyone several years ago. Um, and so InnerSense wanted to kind of push back on that um, as a new new way to think about things, a new paradigm. And I feel that within the space. It does feel still like it's holding on to a little bit of the counterculture. You know, we're not, we're not the hot trendy studio at all. We're the studio that's focused on trauma awareness and mental health. Um, we're the studio that's focused on making sure that our staff of facilitators is widely diverse and that our offerings are widely diverse because yoga is not the only way to heal. Yoga has been my way to heal. Yoga has been many people's way to heal. 
but not everybody wants to do yoga. Not everybody wants to move their body like that. And it's fine. Yeah. Can you tell me more about um, inner sense and what your mission is? Mm-hmm. Um, our mission is to help build a more restored and peaceful society through embodied practices. So the word embodied is in our mission statement. <laughs> um, we believe that collective healing and community healing um, is fueled by individual healing. You know, But I also know that individual healing doesn't happen individually. <laughs> so like what a circle, what a cycle that is. You can't heal by yourself. Healing has to happen, I think, in relationship with others. And whether that other is a beautiful, you know, yoga teacher who you only see once a week for an hour but holds really peaceful and loving space for you, that might be it. But healing happens in relationship. Our mission is to create a space that brings people together and makes people coming together accessible with our pricing. We are, and we have tiered pricing, which is basically a version of sliding scale. Um, and outside of that, even at our lowest listed rate, we accept whatever people can afford to give us to come in because it's more important that we have folks walking through our door engaging with the space and engaging with each other, um, which is why we chose to be founded as a nonprofit. Because we all know that we're at a time where things need to change. But if we don't start kind of like turning inward together, we can't rely on the powers that be, I have that in air quotes, you know, the powers that be to really come in and take care of us. We have to take care of ourselves and we have to take care of each other on the individual and the community level. So we've got to find ways to be together in this and to be together in the fear that shows up around the truth of that. Um, I don't think that there are a lot of places where you can walk into and when someone says, how are you, you can honestly say, it's been rough. I've barely been able to get out of bed the last week. My depression's really been kicking in. Mm. You know, most people show up in workspaces or with their family and it's more like, oh, I'm fine. I'm good. Everything's good. Um, in our sense, we want to feel really different, and it's proven to be that, you know, by, I think, the programming that we have. So if you even just take a look through our schedule, I, I hope that you can see that we are a space where you can walk in and be as honest as you need to be and as messy as you need to be at that time, and you are still, like, so loved and so cared for, and you can engage with us as deeply or as loosely as you'd like. Because I think for me, the healing aspects of community are that it can be just a few familiar faces that I see every once in a while that feel, you know, um, welcoming to me. It doesn't always have to be engaging really deeply. It doesn't have to mean like, you know, I'm spending so much time and opening up all of the time with all of these people, but it can be as simple as having a space that you can walk into, let your breath deepen, let your nervous system regulate with a few other people in the room who get it and who understand. And that's what we, you know, we really aim to create at Intersense. Mm-hmm. Lots of different trial and error and things that we're, you know, envisioning for the future. Yeah, the um, 
the feedback loop of individual peace, cultivation of a connection to embodiment or to the divine intersecting with how that impacts others in relationship, how that impacts the community, how that impacts how we make decisions in the world. I see that as very hopeful. Mm. What you're doing is very hopeful. Mm. Mm-hmm. What, if, what if more people were walking around with this awareness of, you know, that we have everything that we need right inside, that we have a connection to some divine source of energy and love right inside? Um, like, what would that be? What would the world, en- how would people engage with each other? We'd be, Everyone was on that level. We'd be less consumeristic, mm-hmm. trying to buy peace or mm-hmm. find it in, in an object or an experience. It's, that's very cu- counterculture, I, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, you know, as we talk about that, sort of like reaching outside of ourselves for something to give us a, something to hold on to, to give us a sense of okayness, it's like, you know, what does that mean in relationship? So there's objects. There's like, oh, maybe if I buy this new thing or go listen or read this other book or um, wear this certain mala beads or outfit, I don't know. Um, will that help with my okayness? But what does that mean in relationship to other humans? If, if the grasping and the reaching for something to tell you that you're okay is another person. And that other person is uh, not able to hold that in their own sort of um, peaceful and compassionate way. For me, it it leads me to think about the, you know, the scarcity mindset, grasping the like, I need something, I need to hold on to this. And when we're all living in that, or when there's many people living in that, um, we're constantly being pulled away from the truth that we really don't need to look elsewhere. I think anyone who is doing, you know, some personal work, some embodiment work, um, spiritual work, the job is to then be it as you're walking the streets, you know, be it as you're on the CTA and people are a little too close to you or, you know, the guy next to you has a terrible smell or is breathing in a really awful loud way or whatever, but to really like find that well of okayness within yourself and then you know it does emanate circling back to this idea of like interpersonal neurobiology that when we're feeling okay and centered in ourselves and our our own presence is online other people's will be as well so you know i think the job of the yogi or the job of the seeker or the self-reflector the the embodied person is to maintain that in the challenging scenarios of everyday life, but also invite other people into kind of like that similar presence. If we can practice, then we can cultivate that in a way that moves beyond our personal embodiment to the spaces that we share with others and the way that we are interacting with others in the world. Mm -hmm. I just had a conversation with someone this morning who is 
applying to be on our board of directors. Um, and she's this really engaged and wonderful community member who, um, she's hosted TV shows, she also does a lot of political work, but that leads her to do these kind of political, these conversations with people who are on the opposite side of the belief, you know, um, world as what I tend to be on or what many of us tend to be in. So she might be talking to the, the more, you know, inflammatory figures um, in politics and in culture. And she was a little nervous about whether we would still want to engage with her since she, um, you know, also engages with, I guess, air quotes, the other side. <laughs> um, she said that she's gotten a lot of feedback that some people don't want to work with her if she's also um, looks like she is supporting someone who has a belief different than her than theirs. Um, but really, that's where the work lies, I think. You know, not that she holds those beliefs of the the, the people with the more inflammatory belief systems, but um, that's where the work lies, right? Is to kind of like do our embodiment work and find our okayness and then go and be in those conversations with the people who are on the other end. You know, I don't know if we're talking about red and blue or black and white or conservative and liberal, whatever kind of, you know, bipolar language we want to use. Um, that's the work that needs to be happening in the world, is that more conversations need to be able to be facilitated in a way of presence and embodiment and openness to understanding, because we're so polarized. You know, we've been so polarized for so long, and the polarization is like more present than ever, it seems like every day. But no one's willing to, I don't think, really tune in and listen. And so this woman was um, a little concerned of if we'd be okay that she goes and tunes in and listens to the other people with the other beliefs. And I'm like, absolutely, you know, that's the the restoration and the embodiment work that we're doing in InnerSense is to bring let all of those people come together or let it be a place where we come and like plug in. I always think about like an iPhone charger. <laughs> like it's the plug-in, you know, you're running out of battery of patience or presence or compassion like your battery does run low on those things sometimes and so coming to a space where you can sort of like recharge and then walk back out and go back out and be in the world with people who are more difficult sometimes to be around for a multitude of reasons yeah it makes me think about um <clears throat> like how how we sit with difference because if we are tuned into our okayness, how we sit with difference looks very drastically different than if we are really threatened by difference. And don't get me wrong, I'm threatened by difference, <laughs> right? Like I'm not at the point where I don't have that. And it makes me think about questions of justice yeah this 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 idea of being able to sit with difference and if that difference is threatening to you or to people that you love or your sense of what is right and true and good then how do we <laughs> how do we maintain um, the compassion 
in that moment. I think it's the question Mm -hmm. of our time. Absolutely. I think so too. And I think it's cyclical because the fear of difference is what leads to the policies. And so we just continue, you know, we're just continuing to get more divided rather than to sit together in compassion of understand why you believe this way or how you believe this way. Um, and I want to be with you in that and see you in that and still see that, you know, you and I may have voted very differently and may continue to vote very differently. And yet, you are also a person of immense value. And deep down in that okayness, I know that we are exactly the same. But because of what we've been taught and told for maybe generations, lineage, we just have some very different beliefs. Like one of the things that I've been thinking about is the systems systems, although they're formed by people with the policies, there's not necessarily the okayness in the systems and the policies, right? I can believe that within you or within someone who is very different than me, I can say, oh yeah, deep down, you know, we both love our families. Deep down, we both care about taking care of the community or what, whatever our shared beliefs are. Like there's space for me to really see that. And then if it's something that's a system that's not, connected to person it's much easier for me to (laughs) be very clear about seeing it as an enemy Mm. (laughs) or a source of injustice or suffering yeah Mm. I think about with this conversation I think about the work that like Desmond Tutu did in South Africa the family members of the victims and then the uh, perpetrators and the restorative work that he did between those two parties um, after apartheid was a system that drove the person to kill. It was a belief system that was hand, you know, that was, they were informed by for maybe generations, I don't know. that it wasn't them as an individual soul that wanted to do damage to another individual soul or family. That it was a system that made them believe that this was the right thing to do or that this is what they had to do at that time for this reason. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was radically personal, right? The Truth and Reconciliation Tribunals were like, were bringing people together so that they saw one another saw the harm that they had suffered or perpetrated and 
were honest about it, began to reconcile, forgive, begin anew. If we don't create spaces for those people to all be in the same room and to get to know each other as individuals and as you know individual souls, we all, you know, I think people can tend to stay in their own little bubbles of comfort in that way of who they spend their time around and who they talk to and who fills their Facebook feed and um, you know people want to be around people who agree with their belief systems spiritual and um, political so if you're not leaving those bubbles and traveling the world or coming to spaces where you're going to be offered something a little different or sit across from a person that's had a vastly different life experience than you how is there ever going to how are we ever going to have a chance at finding center as humanity? Mm. And I know that there are a lot of places and organizations out there doing really good work in that way. Um, but as I like talk this out, I'm thinking, you know, that's, that's how we're going to move forward. You know, that's how the collective is going to heal. is to find ways to be in dialogue and in relationship with the ones that we, from our side of the street, are pointing towards or doing all the wrong. And to understand that individually we're no different, that it's the politics and the systems that are telling us that we are. And we have to push back against that. you to Rachel Sharon for bringing me into her space that is peaceful and full of light. For more information about Rachel, you can go to somawisechicago.com, innersensehealingarts.org, or discoverbreathe.com. Thank you to the Embodied Education Institute of Chicago for supporting this podcast. Thank you to Josie Rothwell for the opening music and Erin Kate Dunnick for the closing music. And thank you to our listener. I'm Kim Rothwell and I'm welcoming you to the return to embodiment. <laughs>